So last week we started in the book of Daniel. Last week we learned two things about God and one thing about Daniel. And to review, we learned last week from Daniel chapter 1 that God has sovereign control, even in terrible times. That's very clear. And these themes that we learned in Daniel chapter 1, we're going to see continues throughout the entire book. And obviously it's greatly applicable to us today. The first thing we learned about God is that He has sovereign control even in terrible times. Uh, the second thing we learned about God is that God blesses those who are devoted to Him. God blesses those who are devoted to Him. And then the one thing we learned about Daniel's character last week was that Daniel held a heart resolve to remain devoted to God. Daniel held a heart resolve to remain devoted to God. And this week, starting in chapter 2, we are going to identify what I believe was the primary component of Daniel's devotion. Daniel was a man devoted to God, and this week we're going to key in on what I think was the primary component of his devotion. Before we do that, however, we need to set the scene in Daniel chapter 2, if you want to make your way to Daniel chapter 2. And before we even set the scene, I would like to challenge you with uh, a tube of toothpaste. Alright? Now, look at this tube of toothpaste. Look at that. Razor thin, baby. You see that? Do you know how many times I had to dig this out of the trash can? Because Rachel thought we were done with it. She was mistaken. We're not done with it. I am not cheap. It's not because of the money. I just like knowing that I've gotten every ounce of toothpaste out of the tube that is possibly in there. And so I get it out and I scrape it over the corner of the counter. And this has this has another weekend at least. I don't skip on how I brush my teeth either. But I bring this this morning to you because I want to challenge you. This is how we should come to the Word of God. And if by nature of coming to the Word of God in this way, we come to sermons in this way too. No matter how imperfectly the sermon may be preached, there is something more we can get out of the Word of God. God's Word is for you. And don't just consume it superficially. It's easy to squeeze the big parts out, but what, a, what about when it starts getting thin? And so my challenge for you this morning is, as we come to the Word of God together, be stingy with it. Get as much out of it as you possibly can. And so by that, I would challenge you, don't just be a passive listener. Be a prayerful listener. You are participating as much in the sermon as I am. And you need to be seeking the whole time that we're going through So they all have to come and tell the king. 
king his dream. So they came, at the end of verse 2, in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. they got to butter him up. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your house shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. So what we have here is a scenario that, that's kind of like a Stephen King meets Tim Burton version of Jeopardy. It's a terrible form of Jeopardy. You come to Jeopardy, and, and this at least King Nebuchadnezzar's Jeopardy, and here's what you have to gain. If you win the game, then you get honor and glory and, uh, and reward. However, if you fail, if you lose the game, you don't just go home empty-handed. If you lose the game, it says you will be torn, according to verse 5, limb from limb, and your house shall be laid in ruins. And what's to make it worse, this isn't just an answer Destroyed. 
So the decree went out, and the wise men were to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them, because they were part of that group. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. So I could just envision Daniel sitting in his study. The king's men come in. Daniel, we got to kill you, man. Sorry. All the wise men failed. They didn't do what they're supposed to do. Well, let's go. We're going to go kill you. And Daniel said, well, what's, what's the urgency here? Give me a second. Tell me exactly what's going on. And the king told him what's going on. Or the, the, the messenger told him what was going on. And I could just see Daniel take a big sip of his coffee and say, I'll tell you what, give me an appointment with the king, and I'll tell him the dream, and I'll tell him what the meaning is. But inside, probably alarm bells are ringing off, and he's thinking, how am I going to do this? My life is in danger. My friend's life are in danger. But he kept his cool, and he pushed himself even deeper into that corner I was telling you about. He was already in the corner. He said, hey, set me up an appointment with the king. Pushed himself even deeper into the corner. We see that in verse 16. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of the dream. And then in verses 17 and 18, I think we identify what I believe to be the primary component of Daniel's devotion, which is prayer. In verse 17, Daniel went to his house. And he made the matter known to Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So here we see his response is he goes with his friends to the Lord in prayer, seeking mercy. And I believe this is the primary component of Daniel's devotion because it's repeated so often through the book of Daniel. Devotion gives rise to prayer. Prayer gives power to devotion. Devotion drives prayer. Prayer delivers devotion. Committed people pray. Committed people pray for commitment. It's like a, it's like a, I see a, a, a scene in my head. Of what prayer in life of the believer is like. I see an ocean. And the trying heat of the sun draws water off the surface of the churning ocean. Vapors rise like prayers. Forming clouds of grace that rain down mercy on those who find themselves in trying times. And so the cycle continues. A weather pattern of testing and trust in the life of the believer. So long as the believer lives. Prayer is rising up, grace pouring down. Benediction and blessing. Brave people pray brave prayers. And gracious answers yield grace-filled people. There are people throughout Scripture that God greatly used in amazing ways. And without fail, they were people of prayer. Jesus, Moses, David... Elijah, Daniel, and you, if you'll have it, be a powerful, believing man or woman of prayer. 
So the primary component of Daniel's devotion that we just start to see here in chapter 2 is that of prayer. We can observe, I think, throughout the book of Daniel, four words that describe Daniel's prayer life. And I hope you take note of these four words, just to evaluate, just to reflect, and perhaps the Holy Spirit will use it to convict you. Remember, we're going to treat this sermon like a toothpaste here, all right? So I would challenge you, maybe write it down. If you have a spot, a scratch piece of paper, just pull out your phone, put it on the notepad there, or text it to your wife, or whatever it might be. But there's four words that I would challenge you to associate with certain passages here in the book of Daniel. These four words describe Daniel's prayer life. And the first one we see here in chapter 2 and verse 18 and following, and that word would be dependence. Dependence. Prayer was not just a passive thing in Daniel's life. He depended on it. He needed it. He needed the results that would come from prayer. Prayer was not just mindless meditation. Prayer was not just set my heart so that I'm ready to deal with the world. No, no. Daniel was going to God, dependently praying, because if I don't have you come through, God, all will be lost. There is no plan B. There's plan A. Prayer. That's it. He lived dependently in prayer upon God. No safe prayers, no hedging our bets. We're asking God to do what only God can do, believing in real world changes. Listen to the, the, the desperation of the situation as we skip ahead to verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known uh, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head as you lay in the in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed comes thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, the mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have. More than all the living, but in order that the interpretations may be known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel is, is very open here. He's saying this is not about me, this is about what God gives. And Daniel went to God with that kind of dependency. He knew, I'm not going to be able to bluff my way through this. There's a lot of situations in life I see very capable. He 
describe Daniel's prayer life. The second word I would like you to write down is consistence. For that, let's turn to chapter 6. The consistency of Daniel's prayer life. Not only was he dependent, but it was completely consistent. He needed it regularly in his life. Daniel 6. Now this is a new, new person in charge here, a new king. We'll flesh all that story and that timeline out later. But let's just set up the scenario. In verse 6, chapter 1, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give, should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials in the satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials in the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They didn't like him being advanced beyond them, so they wanted to have some kind of complaint to knock him down to size, something to diminish him in the eyes of the king. But, in the middle of verse 4, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error of fault was found in him. What a tremendous testimony, first of all. He was faithful, so faithful that even the enemies that despised him could not doubt this about his character. There is no way that this man Daniel could be observably faithful unless he was already committed to be faithful whenever he was being when no one knew what he was doing. It's what you do when no one watches you that prepares you for those moments where every eye is upon you. And we find out in this passage that what Daniel was doing was praying regularly. Dependent prayers. Consistent prayers. Never stopping. In verses 6 through 9 we see that the trap is laid. These high officials, they go to the king and they say, hey, make a, king, make a decree, O king, that no one uh, can... Make a petition to any god or any man for the next 30 days unless they're asking you for it. Because they realize Daniel was so faithful, there's no way that we can discredit him unless, we see it at the end of verse 5, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So, the king passed this decree. You can't ask anybody or any god for anything for the next 30 days. I'm the only person you can ask a petition of. And now we see consistency in Daniel's prayer life, down in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in the upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. This wasn't new. This is what he had always done, and he's like, no law of man is going to make me change how I worship my God. And as we look at these, just a couple verses here, really mostly just verse 10, if we look at verse 10, we can emulate certain patterns in our own prayer life to, to incorporate that same kind of consistency in our prayer life. Not just dependence, but consistency. First of all, notice that he made this decision. It was a knowledgeable and committed decision. He knew what the consequences might be, but he was committed and he was determined. What we know for sure is Daniel just wasn't waiting for the feeling to strike. 
I feel like praying today. He wasn't just waiting for that emotional amping up. Yeah, you know, it's always easy to pray when you get done worshiping and singing in a crowd like this. But Daniel had a knowledgeable and committed decision. These are the times of day that I'm going to pray. We can learn from that. Not only that, but we see that he prayed three times a day, every day. That's not too much to ask, is it? Three times a day, every day? We eat three times a day, most of us, or more. Surely we can go to the Lord in prayer three times a day, like Daniel did. And you might say, well, I, right, I don't have enough to pray for. I mean, I'm all for praying three times a day if I'm looking for an answer or if I need God to give me something. But my life is pretty good, so I, I don't really think I have to pray three times a day. But look what Daniel prayed. It says he prayed and gave thanks before his God. If nothing else, you should go to God three times a day in prayer and just give thanks for the so many different things that he has awarded you and afforded you and blessed you with in your life. I think we can pray three times a day. The Lord so put it on our hearts to do so. And I don't think we would ever run out of prayers to pray. I notice also this about his prayers. He had his windows open to Jerusalem. So he would pray facing Jerusalem. Remember how big Israel was and Jerusalem was in the life of the Jewish people. It was everything. It was where the presence of God was. It was where the temple was. And remember, Daniel was stripped away from that. He was carted off to a foreign country. But I really see that Daniel praying towards Jerusalem. This is us looking towards our Jerusalem. We kneel down. We pray three times a day. That's us longing for our home. That's us longing for the kingdom of Christ. That's us. Well, our home is Jesus Christ himself. He is our home. And one day we will see him face to face. One day we will look at each other in the eyes, just like I'm looking at you in the eyes. And when we come to God in prayer, just like, just like Daniel was facing Jerusalem, longing for home, when we come to God in prayer, that's us longing for the return of Jesus. That's us longing for Jesus to make himself at home in our lives. There was consistency in Daniel's prayer life. So two words so far. Dependence, consistence. We go to chapter 9 for the third word. The third word pops up in chapter 9. And that word would be repentance. Repentance. One of the things that marked Daniel's prayer life was repentance. So turn with me to chapter 9. Now, we're going to go through this in more detail later, but all you really need to do is look at verse 27 of chapter uh, 8. It says, I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. Then I rose, and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. We don't need to get into great detail, but all you need to know is the vision was so disturbing for Israel that it actually made Daniel physically sick. He didn't know if he could go on. But finally he got up and he kept going. But he went to the Lord in a prayer of repentance. Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of, of Amid. So this is another king now. Who made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. That's the book of Jeremiah we have in the Old Testament. He discerned that 
what must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So here we're going to see all of chapter 9 pretty much is a prayer of repentance. And we can learn so much about repentant prayer. Is penitence a part of your prayer life? Are you broke up over, over the brokenness of the world around you? Are you disturbed when you see evidences of sin in your life? Whether you're the one choosing the sin or you're the one living with the consequences of the sin. Is repentance a part of your prayer life? It was a part of Daniel's prayer life. It's what made him so devoted to Christ. And so as I just kind of break down some of the characteristics here, I encourage you to go back later and read chapter 9 in more detail, but we can see some of the characteristics. A repentant prayer involves mourning, recognition of sin, longing for mercy. In verse 4 he says, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned. And done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and, uh, and teachings. He was mourning, like, like mourning the death of a loved one. He was mourning over his sin. He was mourning over the broken relationship he and his people had with God. And it said, he, you notice the word confession there. He made confession. This is important. And we're a little, we're in a different position than Daniel was too. Daniel had to offer sacrifices to kind of gain that forgiveness from God. We have forgiveness. First John 1 9, we confess our sin. He is faithful. He is faithful. And he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, that's a one-time prayer, I believe. And so I I try not to make a habit of asking God to forgive me. Because Christ died on the cross. He forgave me of all my past sins and all future potential sins. He forgave me of all those sins. But I do make a habit of confessing my sins to God. And that's what we see Daniel doing here. He confessed his sins to God. What is confession? Well, if Kevin here committed some kind of terrible crime, which we all know Kevin is probably capable of, the police would take him in and they would put him in a room and they would interrogate him. And they would continue to interrogate him until he finally gave what? A confession. And what is the confession? The confession is, I agree with you. What you are accusing me of doing, I agree with you. And that's what confession is when we go to God. We confess, we're saying, what it looks like for me is I see a sin in my life that I know Christ has died for, and I know that he's forgiven me of, but I confess it to God. I say, Lord, I see the sin the way that you see that sin. I don't defend it. I recognize that I'm in agreement with you that this is offensive to who you are. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give me confidence and mercy and so confidence in the grace that you have in my life that this sin will no longer be a part of who I am. We confess our sins. Daniel was mourning. He was pleading for mercy. He was confessing his sins. He was casting himself on God's character. When we pray repentant prayers, we cast ourselves on God's character. And we see that in several places at the end of verse 4. He says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. In verse 9, he says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. We have rebelled against 
brought upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15. And now, O Lord God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. And have made a name for yourself. At this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. In verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts. Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Notice what's going on here. The repentance is less about how Daniel feels and more about what is the character of God and how does that character demand that I respond to this situation. And notice also at the beginning of this, Daniel is praying. He's using words like we and us. He's praying for his entire nation. I think we need to have prayers like that. For our nation right now. Do we not? A lot of sins in our nation. That we need to kind of take ownership of. Even if we weren't the ones particularly participating in it. Calling out to God for mercy. We see this. Where Daniel. He defines the sin. He calls it rebellion. Turning away from God's word. From his leaders. From his teachers. But he's not blaming God. He's not making any excuses. He's taking ownership of the sin. You know, this is important in our prayers of repentance. That we don't cast any blame back towards God, that we take full ownership. Uh, Rachel and I, occasionally, this may shock you, we sometimes get in a fight. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, and he's, he's a godly man with a lot of good quotes, he said, in the, in the fairy tale, the prince and the princess always live happily ever after. And Chesterton said, and so they did. They lived happily. Though I'm convinced from time to time they threw furniture at each other. Well, Rachel and I don't throw furniture at each other, but we do sometimes get in a fight. And when you're not walking in the Spirit, and oftentimes when there's an argument, one or both of you are not walking in the Spirit, but if neither of us are walking in the Spirit, we get in an argument, it's like a football being thrown back and forth. And that football is blamed. So Rachel might bring something to my attention, and I'll say, yeah, but, and then I throw a little bit of the blame back to her. And then she'll say something like, uh, I hear what you're saying, Ryan. However, and that's her throwing a little bit of the blame back to me. And then I say, Rachel, I receive what you're saying, but I need you to receive. And then I throw the blame a little bit back to her. And we need to be very careful because that cycle's not broken until we both come together in humility and both take ownership or when it's only one of us takes ownership of what we've done wrong. And we need to be careful in our prayers of repentance that we do not cast any blame back towards God. Remember, they were in a terrible situation, and it would be easy to wag the finger at God. But he recognizes in this prayer, Lord, you are storing this calamity up for a long time, and you were patient, but we continue to rebel. And now this is on us. And notice finally, in verses 16 through 19, you can read it more clearly, but I'll just read verse 19. His repentance, not motivated by his emotions and his feelings, but it was motivated by the character of God. He took ownership of it. It was collective. He didn't, he didn't exclude himself from the sin. He didn't blame anyone else. There was no excuses. And in the end, he's asking for deliverance from the sin for God's sake. In verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God. Because it's your city and your people who are called by your name. The 
their sin was kept hidden for some time, and then it came out, and there was a black eye in the reputation of Jesus Christ. Even in this community, we've seen it. May it never happen here. May it never happen to any one of us, because we will be people who are dependent in prayer, consistent in prayer, repentant in prayer. One last word that we can look at is persistence. Persistence. That means he wouldn't relent. He wouldn't stop. And you see this in chapter 10. Again, we'll cover this more in more detail at another time. But in chapter 10, we see that Daniel, well, let's just go ahead and read verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Three weeks here of mourning and semi-fasting. You know, he, wasn't, he wasn't drinking just water, but he was he wasn't excluding the
back up. We're going to sing an old and familiar hymn about prayer. I ask you to stand. And as you contemplate, Lord, what would you have me do? It's not a coincidence that you were here this morning. You could have stayed somewhere else. You could have gone somewhere else. There's probably every person here has two or three valid reasons why you could not have chosen to come. But you did. And this is the sermon that God has for you. So what are you going to do with it? Let's sing this hymn prayerfully. And let's just allow the Spirit to guide us in what we will do with it. 